Welcome to Being Better Podcast, where we explore the things that make us happier, wiser, and more productive beings. Hi, my name is Julia, and I am your host. Every week, I take a concept, a technique, or a story to learn how it will make us better. I hope that this show can help you become the person you've always wanted to be. So, here we go. Welcome to the Being Better podcast. It is great to have you here and I hope you and your loved ones are doing great today. I am Julia, just in case you forgot, and it is my job to find and talk to people from different fields who can inspire you and educate you and entertain you on the journey to, well, self-discovery for lack of a better word. And this week I had the absolute pleasure to talk to Dr. Julie Frattentoni. Julie is a cognitive neuroscientist who specializes in speech-language pathology. Um, currently, she is the head of operations at the Brain Health Project, which is a part of the University of Texas at Dallas. And it is a research institution that focuses on enhancing and protecting and restoring brain health in people of all ages and genders and skin tones. She has her PhD in communication sciences and disorders, and through her work, she focuses on educating and training people of all ages about reducing stress, being content, achieving goals, and improving brain health as a whole. She also leads the Kindness Enterprise, which is a research program that aims to better understand the brain's capacity for empathy, compassion, and kindness. And what I didn't know at the time that I spoke with Julie is that she's also trained in mindfulness and breathing techniques. Um, but I have to say that after meeting Julie, I am not even a bit surprised by this. She is a lovely person, very grounded and mindful, and she's a, just a pure delight and a well of scientific knowledge that can be helpful in achieving mental and physical well-being. So without further ado, enjoy the lovely and I have to say a tiny bit intimidating, you know, through all of her achievements. Um, here is my incredible guest, Dr. Julie Frattentoni. Um, Julie, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure. And I mean, I've been really, really looking forward to this conversation. I think you are officially my first doctor on the podcast which is like my small achievement uh, because I've been just I've always been looking for real science-based advice uh, coming from people who really know their stuff even, even though that I believe that we all have um, advice and our experience to share I really love um, having you on. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, to be here. Um, and before we get with our conversation, um, can you say a couple of words about yourself and the work that you do just for the listeners who haven't had the chance to learn about you yet? You know, just give us a quick uh, bio if you can. Sure. 
So I'm Dr. Julie Frattentoni. I am a cognitive neuroscientist, which means that I study and the human brain and I do research. So I learn about the relationship between um, behavior and then the actual you know, structure and function of what's going on in the brain um, during those behaviors. My specialty or my, my biggest interest and passion is really learning how we can um, you know, create healthy lifestyle and habits to support a healthier brain, um, which then of course supports overall well-being and truly high performance. So I'm really interested in learning what are the things that are going to help me, um, help my brain function its best so that I can do everything that I need to do in my life to achieve the things I want to achieve, um, to be the kind of person that I want to be. And so, um, yeah, so I'm the head of operations at the for the Brain Health Project, which is a big research study that is being led from the Center for Brain Health at UT Dallas. So I'm tuning in uh, from Dallas, Texas today. Um, but this study is is again, it's all about really changing changing the conversation around the brain, um, trying to move it out of you know, there's a lot of stigma, a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity around the brain. And so wanting it to be, you know, it's our most important organ. It controls everything. And so empowering people to learn how their brain works, um, learn how they can use it better. And um, so that's a the big goal of the study. So I get to have my hands in a lot of things from uh, the, the, of course, the research and the science aspect of the study, but I also get to be involved in really the user experience and um, the messaging and the content and thinking about how we can make this engaging and how we can reach um, younger generations and really, but really across the whole lifespan, um, you know, youth eventually, but currently adults 18 to 100, that at any point in your life, um, you can learn and improve. And so that's the most incredible thing I think about the brain. And so really thinking about how we can um, get that message out there and and make it fun and engaging and, and something that people want to think about and learn about. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that you are kind of like the perfect guest for the podcast. You know, you said that you are researching um, what makes us better and how to, you know, be the person you want to be. And I mean, I literally say at the beginning of each episode that I hope that this show can help you become the person you've always wanted to be, not because you should think that you are not enough right now, but I think we all have our little hopes and dreams to be a little healthier and happier. And um, having you to talk about this today, I think it's great. And I mean, um, I think I speak for everyone when I say that your whole uh, work uh, is very impressive and I don't I want to stress that I am not um, inviting people that I think that just have achievements but I think that the work you do um, can really help a lot of people and and help understand this organ that we, we couldn't understand you know just I mean 50 years ago all of the things that we know about brains are really like new information, I think. And so I'm really excited about this field and what we can learn uh, about this, you know, central uh, operations of our body. Um, and before I fangirl all over uh, your work, um, let's stop right here and take a quick detour uh, and talk about the recommendation of uh, this week, which 
you know, for anyone new here, at the beginning of each episode, we have a segment called the recommendation of the week where the guest or me, if it is a solo episode, recommend uh, to the listener something that he or she has been enjoying lately. And it should be something fairly accessible to the listeners that they can experience for themselves, like a movie, a book, a product or an artist or a podcast um so what can you julie recommend to us today sure so this past week i've been exploring the app blinkist are you familiar with it i've heard about it okay so i just decided to give it a try and i i really enjoy that i get to it's getting these quick snippets, you know, of books, um, but it really helps. I've used it to determine which books I want to actually get and read the full thing. So it's kind of a nice, you know, synopsis of like, oh, okay, that sounded interesting. Let me hear a little bit more about it before I decide to fully invest um, time into reading the, the entire thing. So I've been, I think I dive, devoured, you know, like <laughs> probably like 20 books this past week because they're each, you know, 15 minutes long. And so getting the, the summary, I think... The other thing I'll say about that is that what's interesting is when you when you don't do the work yourself to read the book and kind of synthesize the information and come up with your own takeaways, that's the process that really helps information to stick or for you to really remember it and hold on to it. I find that some of these summaries, you know, when they just start spitting it out to you, it's not as memorable. So I would need to like listen to it again or, mm. um, cause you're not getting all that context. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but I think it's a great, so do I understand correctly that this is like an app that has, um, the summaries of uh, books or just shorter, um, ways of just, uh, yeah, they basically just give you the main takeaways from the book and each one you listen, if you listen to it, it's about 15 minutes long, um, to listen to, or you can read it, you can read through it, but essentially it's, yeah, it's the key points, um, from a book. So just a short and not, not like a, not an abridged version, but really they try to highlight the takeaways. Oh, I um, love that. So yeah, they'll, at the end of each kind of section, they'll say the main point of this chapter was this. That's and so useful. Anyway, so I've been enjoying that as getting a lot of good exposure to, yeah, a lot of different authors and, um, and it's just so easy, you know, while I'm walking the dog or on a commute and you just, you always have 15 minutes. So yeah, absolutely. I think that is a great tip, uh, for anyone who, um, uses the excuse that I don't have time to read, which I understand sometimes we, you know, cannot find, you know, an hour uh, but the thing is, you don't have to have an hour. If you want to um, use Blinkist, I think that's a good way. I'm definitely going to try that. And for anyone listening, um, I'm going to put the link to the app in the episode description so you have an easy access to that. And now let's get into all of the good stuff. And I want to start at the beginning and if we can uh, go down the memory lane um, I want to ask you what was the thing that originally interested you in the brain and neuroscience and so did you have any misconceptions about this field and how studying it studying the brain would look yeah so I got interested in the brain it really started through a fascination with language and communication disorders. So I 
did my undergraduate and my master's program in speech language pathology. And so there's a lot, everything from autism to brain injury to stroke um, to many different motor speech disorders and articulation. And anyway, there's just languages in the brain and it's a huge mystery. It's so complex and truly fascinating um, to try to understand how that works. And so got into the field that way and then realized that language is the primary way that we are able to assess or really measure cognitive function, um, that in order to measure those things, you have to read or write or speak <laughs> to, to translate your thoughts or to demonstrate uh, knowledge. And so that was really interesting to me. And I really, I just had so many questions. And I think as a, as a, being a clinician at heart, I truly wanted to understand these mechanisms, how they work in health to then better understand when there is injury or disease, uh, what can we do, you know, provide better therapy or intervention to um, fix these things when there's problems. And then as I got into it, <laughs> I love your question about the misconceptions because it's that, that quote, um, I think it's a Mark Twain quote, but it's, the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> and it was like, I that think is... there's like this joke that every, if you don't know the quote is probably Mark Twain because every quote is Mark Twain because everyone <laughs> thinks it's Mark Twain. So, you know, uh, I, I might, might look for it and maybe write down in the episode description who that actually was. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, as I got into it, I realized, wow, there's really so much that we don't understand. And so let me give you a, a more concrete example of that is that even our, the complexity of how the brain works. So it's electrical in nature of how the cells talk, the neurons talk to each other and communicate. And, um, and the way that we can measure that, the tools that we have are somewhat limited. I mean, I want to say, you know, we've made incredible advances even in just the last 10 years um, of new tools, new ways of looking at it. But for example, when you're looking at something like a brain scan or an fMRI, functional magnetic resonant imaging, um, we're just looking at whether the areas of the brain are oxygenated, oxygenated or not. So whether the blood, you know, and we're using that as a proxy to say, oh, okay, that region is requiring more oxygen and more blood. And so that must be, you know, the, the area responsible for what that function is. Or with something like EEG, electroencephalography, where you're, you know, putting electrodes, you wear a cap and it's measuring the electrical signals from the brain, um, but it's from the surface. And so then you don't get as good of localization and the deeper structures and it's better for timing. And anyway, so I guess there's lots of different angles to try to come at measuring the same thing. Um, but a lot of it is a lot of approximation and a lot of averages and a lot of just not to say the tools we have, you know, aren't aren't good, but I think that there's so much potential uh, going forward to be more accurate, to actually see what's happening in real time. And especially the other thing with this is that everyone is so unique, every person and what they do and what they think and feel and, and you know, where they live and what their responsibilities are makes their brain so individual. And so when you're looking at a lot of these studies, it's, it's group data and it's like, you can't put people in a vacuum, right? It's like everyone's got all these other things going on. So there's so many factors I think that you have to control for that it's really hard to say um, 
what really <laughs> is responsible for what. Um, so there's incredibly good science out there um, that's being done and that we're doing. But I guess just that was to me maybe the most surprising thing as I got into the field and was like, oh, like we're we're guessing a lot of the time, which that's what scientists do is they, they make educated guesses. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and then test them. So, yeah, I love that. I think, um, curiosity is something which I don't know why, um, is something that we teach children that is a bad quality when actually most of scientists and even just explorers or travelers, do what they do because of curiosity and I think we should actually teach that curiosity is one of the greatest qualities one can have um so I love that that was what interested you in um uh, in the brain and you are a great example and to to say that you know actually curiosity is something you should care about and develop and really make sure that you don't have any biases i mean we all have biases but making sure that they don't stop us uh, is really really important um so you as you said you've uh, went th from the speech language pathologies um to more of a wellness search for wellness when it comes to neuroscience and I think that is very interesting I think communication and mental wellness and brain uh, health are connected however I think it is a jump so can you explain your current research and how it is different from what you have done and also um, what you have found through that research that you do now about human emotions and other other things and that excites you or surprises you uh, the most yeah so m my most recent work or what i what we've been working on with the brain health project we just published um, a paper about the pilot study we conducted last year uh, it came out in march it's in the journal frontiers of public health um, but what we were really pleasantly surprised to find is, well, one, so we were asking our big questions were, you know, one, could we get people to care about their brain and engage with this online platform that was going to, you know, teach them tools and strategies, um, you know, these online trainings, would they do it? Uh, would they do, we have coaching as an aspect of it. Would they like that? Would that be helpful? And so we had about 200 people that, um, adults ages 18 up to 87 who participated. And I would say the biggest takeaway from that paper and really that study is that we saw, and this we kicked this off in March of, of 2020, so right as the world was shutting everything down. Yeah, and so really got this interesting snapshot in time of how people were doing kind of right at the beginning of the shutdown and then three a three-month time span um, when really it was the peak of, you know, a lot of job loss, a lot of, if you didn't lose your job, incredible stress of, you know, uh, navigating the transition to working at home, childcare, all these things that a lot of people were going through. And so, and just the uncertainty, um, fear of getting sick, getting sick, you know, all these factors. And so that in this, you know, most, um, one of the most difficult times probably in history that we actually saw a lot of people were able to make gains in what we call their brain health index. And so that's a score 
that you get. Um, it's a, a comprehensive assessment that really helps you think about your brain in terms of being so much bigger than just something like a memory test or, you know, IQ. It's like, no, your brain is, it's your social interactions, it's your well-being, so your mood, your resilience, it's your daily life. So we do care about sleep and exercise and diet. Um, and then your cognitive functions, of course, um, attention, how you are strategic, how flexible of thinking, you know, innovation. So anyway, so it's a, a really broad holistic um, and comprehensive measure is the brain health index. And so what we saw is that overall, everyone had an average of a 10 point increase. Um, and some people increased a lot and some people did go down, but just to be able to track that over time. And so I think it was encouraging because this was really our, our proof of concept of will this work? And it was entirely virtual. So getting people to um, you know, take these assessments and keep up and do the online training, which was self-paced. And so, um, so I would say positive in terms of this is a tool that we're really excited to scale and that anyone anywhere with, you know, a device and internet connection can have access to this type of information. So that's huge. Um, and it's really, you know, it's a, it's a nice mix of both it's research, but it, it's translational at the same time. So it's interventional and it's, um, it's not just a set, you know, this group gets this and this group gets this. Instead, it's everyone needs something a little different and where can we nudge people along um, so that they can be their best self. I love that. Um, and yeah, I think it's very exciting. And also you told me that um, before, you told me that you are also working on understanding empathy and kindness and so can you elaborate on that? Because I also thought that this was also very, very interesting. Yes, absolutely. So we also at the Center for Brain Health have uh, an initiative. It's called the Kindness Enterprise. And so we are seeking to really uncover more of the neuroscience that underlies kindness, empathy, and compassion. And so this, I think, was seen as something, you know, previously or maybe still is, I think, um, a lot considered kind of fluffy or it's not a hard science. You know, I think for a long time, scientists just put emotions in this box of like, <laughs> we can't study that or that's not, you know, um, measurable. And what we've seen is that it absolutely is measurable um, from things like brain scans to, you know, really being able to have that data. So I think, and for people to see that there is just incredible science supporting how essential things like compassion, empathy, and kindness are to our overall health and well-being. So really, um, you know, information like, like there's a book I'm reading right now called Growing Young, um, and it's about how kindness, friendship, and optimism can help you live to be 100. And just, you know, just incredible examples of, you know, different cultures all over the world. But then even the ones that we, you know, live in right here, our very own neighborhoods. And we subjectively feel this too, but, and we definitely saw this with the pandemic of just the, you know, the negative effects of being socially isolated or having the limited social interaction and what that does um, to our recovery. We know that experiencing, you know, strong social support leads to a stronger immune system. Your body produces more, you know, natural killer cells and T cells, and um, that helps you fight off those things. So like patients that have more empathetic doctors actually heal from their colds faster um, than those who don't, you know. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And then just, and then specifically for the brain that when we um, have good 
positive social connections, uh, that that leads to decreased uh, anxiety, depression, decreased stress, leads to better sleep, um, less likely to see cognitive decline as you age. So really um, just incredible brain benefits. And and the science is truly shocking that um, I think it was, you know, loneliness is worse than you than smoking like 10, 10 or 15 cigarettes a day, something like that, oh, just for your, wow. for your health outcomes. Um, it really, oh, that's incredible. Yeah. It's a shocking, uh, statistic. And I think it's, it really puts into perspective how much we are wired for social connection, um, from the get go. If you think about, yeah, you know, early or our ancestors, that being a part of a tribe or a group and having those strong social connections was essential to survival. And so yeah, if you yeah, that's... were left on your own, you probably weren't going to make it. And so we are wired to need that. And our, our health and our vitality is reflected when we don't have it. I mean, I think it's so important, yet we don't think about how important connection and social life is. I think I was listening to a podcast uh, with um, a neuroscientist, which I don't remember his name right now, but he was studying orangutans. And the study was um, um, when you take an orangutan and kind of would he choose uh, moving up uh, the social status ladder or would he prefer um, having friends? And actually what they found is 100% all the time the orangutans chose um, the having friends that they can rely on than, you know, being the, the alpha male. And I thought that is, you know, incredibly interesting since you know those are are very um close um family when it comes to the tree of evolution and it's it's so interesting that actually we think that all of we all of what we want is status when actually it's not and even with you know other animals we think all they want is status when actually it's not so yeah i think it's very interesting and something that we are just starting to realize through the pandemic that actually social connections um, and being seen and being heard is something we value much much more and or we should value much much more because actually it makes us feel uh, feel better um, and actually I want to segue um, to feeling better and happiness uh, because I think um, most of what we do in life is based on the search uh, for happiness. And I think we make decisions based on um, what I think psychologists call um, the affective forecasting, affective as uh, in emotional forecasting. And it describes the fact that we make decisions based on predicting how this effect of that decision will make us feel. Um, so, you know, a nicer car will make me feel nice, right? And uh, working out is hard, so it makes will make me feel bad. And this is how we usually uh, make decisions, even if we are unconsciously, unconsciously doing that. Um, 
But I would argue that we are very bad at predicting what different things, how they will make us feel. And actually, we think that that car will make us feel great when actually maybe it won't. Um, and I don't, I think we are just very bad at predicting happiness and how, where happiness comes from. Um, so can you break down the scientific uh, research um, regarding happiness and share your thoughts on if we should even base our decisions on this emotion? Yeah, this is such a great topic to think to be thinking about um, because I think so many of us right are on that hamster wheel of just the pursuit of happiness and not that that's wrong or bad to want to be happy I think that's normal um, but that happiness is a, a fleeting state or emotion I think what to seek more would be joy because joy is is it more of a, a state of being, whereas happiness to me is kind of a, a fleeting thing. So I think that distinction is important. And then I think, um, and to that end, that if you're always chasing that next thing, it never satisfies. So we kind of have these, these hearts that just are, <laughs> can never quite get enough. Um, you know, you eat a really fantastic meal and guess what? You're going to be hungry again the next day, uh, no matter how good it was. So it's like that, that just leads to, I think, a cycle of not being, not ever being fulfilled or never reaching it. Or like, you know, you hear these um, incredibly successful people like the Tom Brady's of the world that, you know, have all the Super Bowl rings and, and are married to the Victoria's Secret model. And they're like, there must be more, you know, or like, or that, that won't bring the happiness. So I think from these case studies of looking at people that supposedly have it all, um, they're actually better off than the person who doesn't have it all, because at least they know yeah. that it won't, that's not what satisfies. So I think anyway, just a, a side note on, on perspective there. Um, but I think in terms of knowing that you are in charge of your own, you're in charge slash you can be in control of your own emotional state and you can set yourself up for success or not. Um, and so to me, that looks like, you know, if you are not what I call the essentials. So if you're not getting solid sleep, like eight hours every night. If you're not eating foods that give your body nutrients, um, you're, I mean, the exact food, the food that you eat turns into the amino acids that form the neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine that control all the functions of your brain and then body. So your food is like little information packets for your cells. And, and so if you're not getting good food, then that's, you know, not going to set up your system, which then that controls your, your mood and your feelings. Um, things like movement exercise that also affects as a whole body system of endorphins and getting, um, helping just to balance stress and relieve stress, and then also, um, provide more energy, um, having social support. We already talked about the importance of that, but truly, um, the, the, just physiological benefits of that. And then, um, and then the last one managing stress. So I would say those five big things, if those aren't in place, it's going to be very hard to be happy because your own biology will be in a sense fighting against you. Um, so I think knowing those foundational things and those are not, they're not groundbreaking things. They're not new neuroscience discoveries by any means of anything, all the science, 
I think really supports the need to just get back to the basics that we've got a lot of clutter and a lot of noise in our lives and um, to really just say, I'm going to prioritize my sleep or I'm going to pay attention to what food I put in my body or I'm going to make time to connect with people I love. Um, Those things fall by the wayside quickly. And then we see that in, you know, it in being depressed or anxious or not, you know, um, constantly not feeling happy. And that's because we're looking to external things. I want to also then talk about this idea of, you know, mindfulness, awareness, um, tapping into that, using curiosity to even break some of those cycles and to really see no matter what is going on around me, I can be in a state of calm. I can be in a state of peace. I can be in a state of, of happiness or joy. Um, if I, if I, it's choosing to see it that way or choosing to rather than react to just observe. Um, so there's, I think a lot of, you know, components of mindfulness that I think are really helpful for that, that, um, learning those tools, then it's like, it doesn't matter if I got the promotion or if I got fired. Um, but I can be okay because I'm at peace, you know, knowing how to, not just constantly be at the whim of your circumstances, um, but just being solid in in a present moment, um, which is very hard and not something we learn to do as kids. Yeah, um, I love that. So um, if we can agree that we shouldn't base our decisions uh, on the pursuit of happiness, um, I under- if I understand correctly, we should um, actually base it on the search of being aware and stable in the present moment. Is, would you agree yeah. with that? I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Because okay, truly, great. I mean, I know it's not... Yeah, continue, please. Oh, I was just going to say, because truly all we ever have is the present moment we're in. And we yeah. don't get to take any of our things with us. And maybe that's getting a little philosophical, but it's like, yeah. if you can be okay right now in this current moment, that's like, it really unlocks, I think the key to, um, just contentment and joy, um, in a way that seeking external things can't. So. Okay. I love that. I really think it's important uh, to think about that. Um, and I also want to move back to the brain, to the big question mark of an organ. Uh, because, you know, I think even though we as humans have studied uh, the brain for decades and decades, I think we still don't understand a lot about this incredible organ. And these days we often found, find out that the things we have discovered about it in the past don't really seem to hold up today. And can you debunk some of the common brain myths that you have seen people referring to as science when the actual reality and the truth is completely different? So probably one of the biggest ones is uh, people thinking that they're either left-brained or right-brained. Um, thinking that the left is analytical and the right is creative. Um, and I think that that stemmed from, you know, like language processing is in the left side on the right side is a little more visual. Um, there's kind of these localized centers, uh, for processing these types of activities. But, um, but truly 
it's the whole brain working together all the time. That there is, there are very few cases. Well, first of all, let me just say there's zero scientific evidence to support that someone is either left brain or right brain, or that those functions are siloed into one hemisphere or the other. So just to state that clearly, um, thank God, but thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you really want to be whole brained. All right. And so only in severe cases where maybe the corpus callosum is severed, which is what, um, connects the two hemispheres. So sometimes in, really extreme um, patients that have epilepsy or a lot of seizures, they would uh, do that to stop the seizures from spreading to the other side. But um, in most cases, if that is intact, then you are using your whole brain um, to do everything, um, all activities. And really the way the brain works, there certainly are certain regions that are localized um, during certain functions, but it's largely networks. So it's like this little hub is talking to this hub and this hub, and the timing of that is really crucial. So um, kind of a different way to think about it is like, there's not like a spot that's like, oh, this is my you know creative spot or my analytical spot. And it's truly uh, many regions working together and that synchrony and timing is really essential. So that's probably one big one. Um, is the left brain, right brain. Another one we hear a lot, and this one's, I don't, it's not very scientific and I don't know where this one started or how they would even measure this, but this idea that we only use 10% of our brain, um, that is, (laughs) that is not true at all. Um, like I said, as I was describing, you know, the different networks and hubs and, and how it's all working together. Um, there's no way that it could just be 10%. I'm not. And then also there's really not a good way to even quantify that. I'm not sure how they could even measure, um, measure that. So yeah, that's another one that, um, that you hear a lot and, um, oh, here's a good one. Okay. That, crossword puzzles or doing Sudoku is going to keep your brain sharp into late in life. So I don't know if that's necessarily a myth, but just something that I think people might think is good to do. And so I would say the brain gets good at what you practice and at what you deem is important is what it will allocate attention and resources towards. So um, if you do a lot of crossword puzzles, you're going to get, you're going to build your vocabulary. You're going to get really good at crossword puzzles, but you may not necessarily become better at decision-making or problem solving or, you know, coming up with innovative solutions or family, you know, uh, navigating relationships or it, things like that. It's like, if you want to get good at those things, you have to practice those things. And so a lot of these functions that I think really matter the most in our daily life are, um, not something that you can do in like a little workbook. It kind of involves taking that and really applying it into actual real life situations. And so that's one that I, I like to debunk that one. Cause it's like, if those bring you joy and that, you know, stimulates your brain and it, it, it activates you and it makes you happy, then by all means, you know, please do them and, and do them throughout your life. Um, so there's nothing wrong with doing them, but if you're holding out hope that that's, what's going to prevent dementia, um, sorry to say that it's not (laughs) okay I'm really surprised by that I've always thought that you know that is the case and all the grandmas that do it are healthier but yeah it actually makes sense um so yeah you know these brain health myths or brain myths I think are so common most of what you talk about I mean not the 10% thing but um the left and the right side I kind of I don't know if I believe that but I think those are 
very deeply just rooted in us that from you know being um, raised up this way and I think it's so important to think about what is actually truth and we you know these days talk a lot about mental health and we, we hear even more about the physical health and um, not to mention that a lot of that advice is actually not really benefiting us but that's a different conversation for a, a whole different day what I actually want to say is that we don't really learn how to take care of our brain health. And even though the things that we learn are actually not true, like like the, the crossword, crossword puzzle thing. Um, so can you break down um, for us what it takes for us to actually have a healthier brain uh, in your youth or in your, you know, uh, winter of life, uh, if I may say that? Um, what... What does it take um, for us when it comes to, you know, our activities um, and the habits and diet and, you know, other other external factors? So I would say um, a lot of those those five big buckets that I we kind of discussed already, I can flesh out a little more detail for those. So um, sleep is absolutely essential and understanding your, your own circadian rhythm, um, which is just, you know, being awake when the sun is out and asleep when it's dark out, um, that we've gotten largely away from that, from a lot of modern technology and we have lights on and we can <laughs> be awake all hours of the night. Um, it's not how our biology was designed and that's not, um, how our brain was designed to function, that sleep is so critical. I can't emphasize that enough that when you sleep, it's clearing out the toxins that build out, build up throughout the day. Um, it's helping every single system to reset and repair. Um, you're consolidating the information you learned, or there's a lot of memory formation happening. So, so many really crucial functions for you to be able to for your brain to function well um, while you are awake is, st- is re- directly related to your quality of sleep. And we also see, I think it's like um, a paper found that more than 80% of individuals that have some type of mental health issue uh, have some form of clinically significant insomnia. So there's a really important relationship there between our sleep and our ability um, to function well during the day and and just with mental health as well. So could go on and on um, about sleep, but I'll just say get your seven to eight hours um, and don't don't sacrifice it for anything, um, especially for any students who may be uh, studying and you pull that all nighter. The best thing you could do is get a full night's sleep because that's going to help you hold on to and and then perform best um, on that test. Um, and then when it comes to movement, I talked about, you know, we were not designed to be sedentary, so we all need at least, um, I would say a minimum of 30 minutes of, of activity of some sort and really find what you love. There's, you know, a lot of research that looks at whether it's cardio or whether it's weightlifting or, you know, these different types. And I would say, just find something you love and do it. And if you can do it with a friend, even better. Um, when it comes to nutrition, eating real foods that grew from the ground that, um, you know, were, are not processed, processed foods and processed sugars. 
actually wreak havoc on the brain. Um, so for example, sugar, high amounts of like high fructose corn syrup, um, actually shrinks the dendrites on the neurons in your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is a brain region responsible for learning and forming memories. And, um, so the dendrites are really how the cells communicate with each other. And so literally if those are shrinking, then you're going to have not as, uh, quick of communication. And, um, so that's impaired working memory, impaired short-term and long-term memory, um, all kinds of issues from, uh, just too much sugar and, and really that sugar is in nearly everything. So to just pay attention to the labels and, and sugar when it's in its natural form in the way that say fruit or honey, for example, it's mixed with other things like fiber and phytonutrients. And the composition of that is going to be different, um, for your body to digest it in a way that it was made. So it's paired up with the things that it needs. Whereas high fructose corn syrup, it's, it's, it's separated from that. Um, and so it's not in a way that our body can process well and for your brain to function well. Um, so yeah, again, could speak, do a whole, t- an entire podcast on each one of these things. Um, we talked about the social connections, um, managing stress is a huge one. So, you know, not letting that build up through the day, finding moments for short breaks is one of the best advice. Uh, some of the best advice I can give to students or people working, um, is taking short five minute breaks throughout the day to, um, your brain can really recharge very quickly. And so, giving it that space to process and, um, not just go from one thing to the next. I think a lot of times we don't remember things because we don't give ourselves the time to digest it mentally. Um, and so when you're just like booked back to back and constantly on the go, um, it leads for a very chaotic, uh, life and, and stress is high. And then, um, memory is lower because of that. Um, and then I want, so those are, you know, really basics. And then I I also want to touch on, how you use your brain in everyday life, because I think this is something that is not talked about as much. And this is something that people can learn more about um, if they want to participate in the Brain Health Project. Um, This is what our training focuses on. And this is this idea of metacognition. Are you familiar with that term? I've heard about it, but I don't want to, you know, pretend that I am just some (laughs) kind of a big scholar here. So um, I think we would all benefit if you would explain it further. Sure. So metacognition just means that we have the ability to think about our thinking. So it's this kind of awareness, consciousness piece of just not going on autopilot, but actually assessing how I want to approach something. So it's kind of a planning piece, but it's also really um, knowing, yeah, how do I want to tackle this information? If I'm going to read an article, I can skim it. I can read it line by line and take detailed notes. I can, you know, instead, uh, extract the big high level themes. Um, so all in the way we approach information. And I think, um, one of the big ones is that we school actually trains us to try to just memorize a bunch of details. And so how many times have you done that for a test? And then after the test, you just forget all of it, right? Like you cram and then you forget. And so that doesn't lead to good long-term storage, that cramming. So it's really just uh, longer exposure is better, short, shorter bits, um, over time. But that also the way when you are studying or learning or just reading a book or listening to a this podcast, for example. Um, and this is kind of what I was getting at when I was recommending, uh, the Blinkist app for the books is that, um, when someone else does the work for you, it doesn't, it doesn't quite stick as much. So actually that process of consolidating and what was my big takeaway from that? And what's the application to my life? How does this change anything I do? That 
uh, level of what we call that deeper level thinking, that's really good exercise for your frontal lobe of your brain. Yeah, so that's exactly. a really good habit rather than just let me regurgitate, you know, you saw a movie and it's like, let me tell you back the play by play. And instead of saying, you know, okay, I just saw this movie and it started with a guy and he lived here and he went there and you're kind of like, okay. But instead I was like, oh, I saw this movie and the themes were about love and betrayal and, you know, the hardships of war. Like those are big themes that you're immediately like, oh wow. It gives you a bigger, um, a bigger category or bucket to put it in. And then you're more likely to hold on to it and then be able to make connections with other information later that can help you solve problems in new ways. So just kind of a complex, um, there's a lot we could dive into with it, but that simply the way that we we are in control of and can choose to interact with the information we're coming into contact with all the time in our lives, that that makes a difference in our brain health um, across the lifespan. I am a big fan of taking... Um taking notes from books I've read because I am sometimes lost and I find, I used to I find that I don't remember the books I've read, you know, a month or two ago. So um, I don't, you know, make it like a big note. I just write down what I've learned uh, in in points. And yeah, and then um, I write some of the, my favorite quotes and actually I've realized that it is actually very helpful to for me to just remember what that book actually was about. Um, and if you have um, older parents or grandparents, um, it's, I think, great to maybe share the podcast or just tell them that those are the things that they should focus on if they want to actually take care of their brain. And you, you know, as a young person, I think those are kind of important too, because, you know, when you are later on in your life, it might be too late to actually make those um, neuropathways and just make sure that your brain works properly. So I think it's all important uh, for all of us to to get that sleep and and actually eat better. <laughs> all of the things that we think are just improving the way we look, actually um, we should do them not because of our appearance, but actually uh, because they make us think better and appreciate life better and all of, uh, all of the things. Um, and taking a big, a, a bit of a detour, uh, from, um, the science, I wanted to ask you about, um, your experience in studying neuroscience and being a scientist, uh, in UT, uh, right now. Um, I, I think that there's, um, it's not a surprise that there are more males in STEM fields than 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 women, and um, so I want to ask in in your experience, has the fact that there are actually more um, men in your field presented more opportunities to you, or maybe in fact um, stripped stripped you away, uh, or made you you know have less. Um, work opportunities that you knew you were qualified for? Yeah. um, So this is such an important topic. I definitely have been really fortunate to, um, I guess, let me put it this way. I most, I'm sure that I've experienced some level of 
um, whether it's, yeah, just gender bias or discrimination just for being a woman in science um, and even being a minority as well. I think, but I've also been, so I think there's, there's ways that it's probably been very subconscious or subtle that it's like, it's such a part of, you know, the air we breathe that we don't even notice it. So I think that there's probably, there probably are many instances that I just can't even tell you about because it's like, I didn't even realize that they were discrimination. Um, I think I've become, I'm becoming more aware of that now, but I would say for the most part, I've been, I am so really grateful for my mentors and, um, you know, I, one of my professors, um, that actually was really who set me up to, to get my PhD. Like he was such an advocate for me. And so he really, um, was so critical and just pivotal in, in my career path. And then my, my PhD advisor, Dr. John Hart, you know, is a man and, and he, we had, you know, a good, I think there was, at the time I was in his lab, there was three women students and three men. And, um, and he, I felt he treated us all the same. Um, he treated us like his own kids and really, really, um, protected us and, um, wanted to give us all everything we needed to be successful. And then my current job now at the center for brain health, um, is run by a woman was, you know, Dr. Sandra Chapman is the founder and director of the center for brain health and, is truly amazing. So the fact that I have a woman leader who, um, empowers women and, and has, she has given me, um, such incredible opportunities with my job now. So I feel, um, incredibly fortunate because I do know that the neuroscience field or just the STEM field careers in general, um, that women are up against a a lot of, uh, high walls or they face a lot of hurdles that men don't. Um, and so, we recently watched a documentary called Picture a Scientist that um, I think sheds a lot of light on the things that women are experiencing that um, just are not talked about enough. And so I love that that you bring this up. Um, but yeah, I just want to say that I, so the short answer is I'm sure, yes, I have. But then on the other hand, I've been incredibly fortunate to um, have some really great advocates that have, have pushed me along and there's no way I, I could be where I am without them. So um, just really incredibly grateful for that and the chance to just recognize them for being, um, being the few that stand out kind of against, uh, a lot of what the norm is. So what would you say is mm, not necessarily the answer, but how, uh, would you encourage more women, um, to, choose STEM fields as a career path and how can we make sure that there are no cases of gender bias or Mm. sexism or misogyny in in scientific fields do you think we are actually we actually can take um action to to make sure that this is a more equal and diverse place yeah that's one of my personal missions and what I've been doing through my social platforms um, on Instagram and TikTok is really showing, wanting to be a role model for younger women um, who are, you know, to see someone that looks like me and sounds like me, um, you know, that is a woman that is also minority um, is 
being that, that picture for them. Because I think growing up to me, uh, and this is the premise of the documentary picture a scientist, but it's like, when you say draw a scientist or you ask someone to do that, they probably drew someone that looks like Albert Einstein or is, you know, a Bill Nye or some just middle-aged man, um, in a lab coat. And so if that's our, our baked in notion of what a scientist is or looks like, um, then it's going to be harder to break that mold. So I think by showing, showing these generations, um, showing more examples of women in science, um, and that you can look like me and do this career, um, I think is really empowering of just simply being a role model or an example, um, for them to know that it's possible. And I think I will say this, that what's crazy about, um, you know, this unconscious bias is that even as a woman, you could have it towards yourself. And so let me explain what I mean by that is that I, for the longest time, didn't even call myself a scientist because I was like, oh, but I like, I like, you know, like, but I'm also social and I also do, I'm an artist too. And I, I teach yoga and I, you know, it, like, and it was like, I didn't fit into this box of what I thought a neuroscientist had to look like that you had to just eat, sleep and breathe textbooks and just be in the lab all the time and just be really, um, antisocial. And it was like, no, that's actually, that's the stereotype of a scientist. And because I didn't fit that, I was like, oh, I, I guess I'm not one. And so it wasn't until I was like, I think in my third or fourth year of my PhD that program that I was like, oh, I'm a scientist. Like I'm doing, I'm doing science. Like I don't, that sounds, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I was like, wow, that was my own just unconscious bias of not even realizing like that was the category I had for what it meant to be in the STEM field. Um, and that's actually not at all what it is. And I, I have so many friends that, yeah, that that's not the case at all. And so I think for my own self to break through that, and then also to then now just be sharing it, um, on social platforms or the channels that I have to really, um, just be an example and encourage people is probably, I think one of the best things that people can do, um, in terms of changing that, um, that mindset so that they see that it's possible and that they see different, many different versions of what that can look like. And I think that's probably with any career that we have in our head that needs to be this one certain way. And I think the more we can encourage people that it's like, yeah, you can be a scientist or you can be a journalist or you can be an artist, but you're going to be your version of that and not the version that, you know, the, the famous people you see or the, they're, they're great to look to, but that that doesn't set the standard by any means. And so, and, and that you will be an even better journalist, artist, scientist, mathematician, um, if you are being true to just uniquely you, um, because only you can be you. So (laughs) it sounds a little cheesy, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, we sometimes forget that those cheesy quotes, like never give up or be yourself. And we kind of just wave our hand at them. Um, but actually there is a lot of truth and a lot of, um, scientific research that can support um, these, quote, cheesy uh, sentences. And yeah, I really, I really love uh, what you said. And I hope that um, we can encourage more people, diverse and from people from minorities um, to pursue um, STEM. Um, And before we part ways, um, I want to ask you, um, how has 
your career and the research you've done and the research um, of your fellow neuroscientists that you've read, uh, how has all of that impacted the way you approach your own uh, personal life, how you build habits and how you create relationships or take care of the relationships that you do already have and how has all of that impacted your daily life? Oh man, yeah, when you get into this field or just this realm of information, it's like you can't unknow things. So it's like when you learn the effects of sugar on the brain or when you mm-hmm. learn how crucial sleep is, it's like <laughs> it's so hard. It's like I can't not, you know, you can't unknow it. So it really does impact everything I do. Um in terms of just, you know, like my friends know me, I'm like such a grandma. I go to, I'm like, I gotta go to, it's like nine o'clock and I'm like, okay, gotta go, gotta go to bed. Oh my God, same. <laughs> I am the same kind of person. I am always be like, people are annoyed at me with me, but I actually do think I love waking up at five or six and I love going to bed at night and it actually makes me happy (laughs) even though I'm also commonly embarrassed no and it's like and so and if anything I'm just like I'm armed with the information of knowing like this is how my body operates best and this is how I can take care of my brain um for a long time so it functions so I you know I can be making an impact and helping people and doing science and whatever it is that I'll be doing well into my 80s or 90s. I don't want to be out of commission, you know, in a nursing home in a diaper for the last 10 years of my life. Like that's not quality of living. So it's like knowing that there are things, the way I live my life day to day now is going to impact my my future and longevity and that I want to be around for grandkids or I want to be around to, you know, contribute to solving world issues or, um, or just mentoring people or whatever that looks like. But I think to see it as, um, not only by taking care of myself and my taking care of my own brain, but then my brain allows me to then give back and, you know, be a part of this greater system and really, um, fulfill my purpose in this world. And I can't do that if I'm sick and tired and grumpy and, you know, not feeling well. So for me, it's like, one, it it is, you know, the science and knowing it. Um, but two is like, I want to feel good, you know, and I want to be able to do the things that I was on this earth to do. And I won't be able to do them if I'm, I'm not taking care of myself. So for me, it, it ties back to this larger thing of like, you know, you can definitely kind of selfishly approach it as like, I just want to be the best I can be, but it's like, for what, to what end, right? What's your, you have to have a a, a bigger, um, connect to something greater. So for me, that's my, my why and my, um, and then also just fascination where I just, I love, I love learning and I love being healthy. So it's, (laughs) it's a perfect, perfect, uh, job for me. (laughs) I love that. And this has been an absolute joy. I'm really um, happy and grateful uh, to you for coming and for sharing your story and your advice and your knowledge and um, all of the facts about our health that you've accumulated through your whole career. So, so thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. This has been awesome. And before um, we go... Would you like to plug anything and that you do or ask something of the listeners? I know that um, 
you probably can use some people maybe answering surveys or uh, contributing to uh, the brain health project so uh, whatever you would like to plug go ahead uh, the audience is lovely and I'm sure that they would love love to support you Sure. Well, first, if you would like to stay in touch with me on Instagram or TikTok, the handle is the same. It's just at Dr. Julie Fratantoni, D-R-J-U-L-I-E-F-R-A-T-A-N-T-O-N-I. And so I'm pretty regularly posting um, brain science and brain tips on there, and it's a great place to contact me. Um, I am launching my website soon, which will be drjuliefratantoni.com. And then, um, and then also my podcast, which is called Better Brain. Uh, the trailer is out, and so that season will be airing hopefully um, soon. And then, yes, if you are interested in participating in research and want to be a part of the Brain Health Project, you can go to thebrainhealthproject.org. There's more information about the study, and you can sign up there, and it'll walk you through kind of some screening questions um, to make sure that you qualify. Um, And so, yeah, I would love for you to get to benefit from the project, and then uh, that helps us as well to just learn more about the brain. So um definitely check that out okay thank you so much uh, all of the links will be in the episode description uh, so you have an easy access and yeah thank you so much and i'll speak to you soon thanks julia i have to say that after my tiny obsession with jigsaw puzzles uh, this winter which i i don't know why i can't seem to stop talking about but after that christmas time puzzle addiction i often found comfort in the excuse that you know puzzles are good for my brain so if i'm being completely honest i feel a little bad about the fact that I've been basically bullshitting myself all along and it actually isn't true um yeah but oh well I think we can at least feel good about sleeping nine hours a day right I mean seriously though I think all people know how important sleep is and I think they still don't sleep enough and I think it is a real problem because I think I read in one of the Malcolm Gladwell's books, that sleep deprivation is one of the most effective ways to get people to open up. This is like the most effective torture method. And I think it it is proof that when we don't sleep enough, we actually just stop thinking properly and we can sell out our country and our family and our co-workers to, you know, some kind of... uh, other government or government organization I think it's really something to keep in mind when you feel like you know I'm gonna sleep when I'm dead Uh, because I mean if you have read Why We Sleep by I think it was Matthew Walker uh, which I'm still getting around to reading but I know that in his book he talked about the effects of uh, what happens to your body and your mind when you are not sleeping, not sleeping enough. And I think you would be terrified to know what happens to us when we don't sleep. And you would be even more terrified about the fact that you cannot really catch up on sleep. So if you sleep five hours instead of eight one night, then you cannot just sleep three hours more the next night. What is 
lost is lost and it is actually impossible to catch up on that lost sleep and this actually makes me feel a little scared and anxious and to be honest and ironically when I cannot sleep at night for reason I don't know if I drank something with caffeine or um, I was looking at blue light for too long and if I cannot sleep at night I start thinking about how bad it is that I'm not sleeping at that moment and how I'm messing up my body and then I'm even more stressed and then the anxiety is keeping me up for even longer so it becomes this vicious cycle yeah Oh, I think I should talk about some kind of inside of the week. Well, I mean, sleep is kind of... I can make sleep my inside of the week. I've been actually having some troubles with sleeping lately. And it actually has been that I'm not sleeping enough, but only because my body keeps waking up at 5 or 6 a.m. Even though I got to bed later than I needed to. And... I was actually day after day, no matter what time I went to bed, if it was 10 or before 11 or 9, sometimes, yeah, like I said, I do sometimes go to bed at 9, pretty often actually, and I still woke up no matter what at 5, felt pretty good throughout the day, wasn't like really tired, however, I feel like I didn't feel that I was tired because I was so tired, if you know what I mean. I think when we are sleep deprived, our brain doesn't function properly and it doesn't notice the fact that we are not using our full potential. And so I've tried different things. I've tried um, going to bed earlier and I've also tried not using uh, the screens, not looking at screens before I go to bed and all of that jazz. But I think I've found the explanation. I, I think I have because... Um, anyway, I think the reason why I keep waking up at 5 is because it's summer right now and it's starting to get brighter at like 4 and f- or 5. So I've been trying to have a sleep mask on and it has been helpful uh, the past couple of nights. And hopefully that is why I have had trouble um, sleeping for longer. But yeah, I've just been thinking that all of us actually don't sleep enough. If you think about it and if you think about your family and your friends, I think sleeping for eight hours or seven, which is also not great for a lot of people, I think it's rare that people actually sleep seven, eight hours. And I think it's so bad. And I think we should talk about it more because like I said, I think we all kind of know, you know, sleep is great and we should be in the REM phase for as long as we can. And we know about it, but then we really don't care. And like I said, I've been getting around to reading the Why We Sleep book, uh, but I mean, I can read some consequences of sleep right now to kind of share and maybe encourage you to pay more attention to your sleep. So some of the most serious potential health problems that are associated with sleep deprivation are actually high blood pressure, diabetes, 
heart attack and heart failure or stroke so all of these bad things that are associated with eating too much sugar or eating too much fat and actually we avoid eating sugar because we think those things are bad but we don't care about the sleep which has pretty much the same effect i mean the lack of sleep um, other potential problems include obesity um, I think that it is connected to your metabolism being lower when you are sleep deprived, which is completely understandable when you think about that our body goes on this energy preservation fight or flight state when we don't eat enough and when we don't uh, sleep enough. It, it makes sense that sleep deprivation can lead to obesity, but it can also lead to depression and lower immunity and lower sex drive and also if that wasn't bad enough a chronic sleep deprivation can even affect your appearance in the sense that over time it can lead to premature wrinkling and dark circles under eyes and there's also a link between the lack of sleep and an increase in the stress hormone of course cortisol in the body which cortisol can then break down collagen and the protein which you know keeps the skin smooth and there are a lot of bad effects of a high cortisol level so if you don't sleep there's really a lot a lot of things that can be bad I think Julie talked also about this in this episode so Maybe that could be my insight of the week. I encourage you and I encourage myself because I also don't treat my sleep as seriously as I should. So I challenge you and myself to take our sleep more seriously, to take naps when we can and to sleep the proper amount of time and also maybe use some sleep tracker that will tell you the quality of your sleep how much time you spend in each sleep phase because I think that it is also important to spend you know it's not only the quantity of sleep but also the quality how much time you spend in different zones because you need to spend in the rapid eye movement phase uh, a lot of time to fully recover this is what I, at least i've heard uh, from matthew walker and yes thank you so much for listening to my insight and my rant about sleep and also to my lovely conversation with dr julie fratentoni Go check her out online and go check out her new podcast, which is called Better Brain. And right now, I think there's only a trailer available, but still go listen to it. It is available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you go, you can find Better Brain. Thank you so much for listening to this whole episode and I will speak to you in the next one. edited and produced by Julia Spor. If you want to learn more, visit the website attached in the episode description or visit our Instagram page, which you can also find in the episode description, or you can search just being better podcast. If you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways to do that. The first one is just to tell your friends and your family about the podcast and tell them why you enjoy listening to the podcast and why they too will enjoy listening to it. 
Another way to support us is to write a review, rate and subscribe to the podcast because that helps new listeners find the show as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I will speak to you very, very soon.